Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Before we begin, I'd like to introduce quickly another podcast which you might enjoy. Hello, my name's Elliot and I run the Anthology of Heroes podcast. Each episode of the show follows the life of a hero from one country of the world, but rather than the stuffy old politicians or tired stories you read about in school, I'll be sharing the forgotten stories of rebels, slaves, heretics and outcasts men and women who went against the tide of history regardless of the consequences. If this sounds like your kind of thing, check us out on Instagram and of course all major podcasting platforms. The name again is Anthology of Heroes Podcast and we hope to see you there. Hello and welcome to a History of Year Kibatos podcast, The French Revolutionary Wars, Part 5 of 6. The first four parts describe the background to the wars and the first couple of years. When military campaigning began again in the spring of 1794, it was Belgium that was the main battleground. The main French army under Jean-Baptiste Jordan besieged the town of Chardois, whose garrison laid down their arms after only the briefest resistance. They were not aware that a relief force was nearby, a combined Dutch-Austrian army under the command of the Prince of Saxe-Coburg. There followed the Battle of Fleurus, one of the biggest clashes of the whole war, with some 80,000 soldiers on the French side and 60,000 on the Allied side. One interesting innovation by the French was the use of an observation balloon with the aim of keeping Jordan up to date about Austrian movements. It was difficult to operate, however, and withdrawn afterwards from service. The Prince of Saxe-Coburg split his army into five columns and attacked the French. His troops, although outnumbered, fought well and managed to break through both French wings. The French centre, however, held and counter-attacked. Perhaps the Austrians could have won a great victory if they had kept driving on, but Saxe-Coburg lost his nerve and fell back to the small town of Waterloo, that 21 years later was to give its name to an even bigger battle. Disheartened, Saxe-Coburg withdrew his forces back to the Rhine, thereby abandoning the whole of Belgium to the French. 
The French victory struck panic into the civilian population of Belgium, who remembered the earlier French occupation and heard news of the atrocities committed in the reign of terror in France. Nobility, clerics and wealthy townsfolk sent their most valuable possessions to safety in Germany. According to the authors Blum and Lambert in the History of the Low Countries, the first 15 months were a nightmare. Quote, the French allowed most of the region's institutions to continue, but only so they could plunder them. This time they did not treat the southern Netherlands as a friendly nation to be freed from oppression, but as a conquered area that would have to pay for the wartime losses incurred by the French. Only a minority of the population proved willing to cooperate with the new government. End quote. On the 1st of October 1795, the Convention of Paris decreed that the former Austrian Netherlands, the Prince Bishopric of Liège and the Duchy of Bouillon would become integral parts of the French Republic. Some of the policies imposed on the region by the French were deeply unpopular, especially religious reforms. All clergymen were forced to swear an oath of hatred against the monarchy, and an oath of loyalty to the Constitution. Public discontent surged again in September 1798, when conscription was introduced for all young men between the age of 20 and 25. This new law sparked serious revolts in many districts, collectively known as the Peasants' War. Resistance was broken, but only with extraordinary violence by the French. Belgium's neighbours, the Dutch Republic, were invaded in the winter of 1795 when the French took advantage of the freezing rivers to make a surprise attack. The waterways which usually provided the country's natural defences were frozen solid. When the French general, Peter Grew, marched into the Republic, he encountered no resistance. The Orangist regime was still unpopular after being restored by Prussia, as described earlier. As the French armies approached, Prince William V fled to England. The Directory in Paris distanced themselves from the revolutionary excesses committed earlier and cooperated with the local Dutch Patriot Party to found what was called the Batavian Republic. In the Treaty of Hague, which confirmed the Republic's satellite status, the Dutch agreed to pay the French the extraordinary sum of a 100 million guilders and to cede the territories of North Brabant and Maastricht to France. British expeditionary forces were evacuated with heavy losses and the Austrians and Prussians were forced to retreat in the face of the French onslaught. During 1795, the First Coalition started to fall apart as individual members came to terms with France. King Frederick William of Prussia, discouraged by military failure and with his finances in ruin, withdrew from the Coalition. In the Peace of Basel, he agreed to hand over all Prussian territory on the left, that is, western bank of the Rhine. This was a considerable blow to her allies, 
partly because of Prussia's military strength, but also because of the strategic threat which she might have posed to France. Her neutrality removed the threat of an attack from the east against France's Dutch satellite or the former Austrian Netherlands. The British, meanwhile, became concerned that the French could now combine their fleets with those of the Dutch and Spanish, so they moved quickly to neutralise the most dangerous of these threats. They captured from the Dutch the Cape of Good Hope in South Africa, a key point in the sea route between Europe and India. They also took the port of Trincomalee on the eastern coast of Sri Lanka, a crucial acquisition to help them consolidate and expand their holdings on the mainland of India. A British naval victory over the French, known as the Glorious First of June, also secured their control over the high seas. The King of Prussia's decision to settle with France was closely related to events in Poland, which led to the Commonwealth's third and final partition. In fact, Tim Blanning writes that the Poles saved the revolution from military defeat. It was crucial that Austria and Prussia, but especially Prussia, were distracted from the war by negotiations over the partition in 1794-95 and by keeping Russia out of the war altogether. Russian control of Polish affairs had caused increasing resentment in what was left of Poland, which triggered an insurrection in March 1794. Its leader, Tedesz Kozysko, achieved a hard-won victory at Rasklavitz in April and Warsaw evicted its Russian garrisons. Within a few weeks, the rebellion had spread throughout Poland. The Polish army caused Prussia and Russia considerable problems in the spring and summer of 1794, but could not overcome the overwhelmingly superior resources of his enemies. The Russian general Alexander Suvorov defeated the rebels at the Battle of Masiewicz in October, and three weeks later stormed Warsaw, massacring the civilian population and forcing the surrender of the terrified capital. By the closing weeks of 1794, the Polish insurrection had been crushed. Excluded from the Second Partition of 1793, the Austrians were determined to have their share in the Third, signing a treaty with Russia in January 1795, which gave her a huge slice of territory that advanced their frontier almost to Warsaw. The Prussians gained the remaining land, a large block in the east, including Vilnius, capital of Lithuania, and Courland on the Baltic coast. Poland had lost out, in part because of her small and backward army and her system of government, where the monarchy was weakened by its dependence on powerful magnates. For decades before its final partition, Poland had been a satellite of Russia and had little control over her own affairs. Her misfortune was her geographical position, situated between her powerful and ambitious neighbours, and the price paid was being literally wiped off the political map. In July 1795, Spain followed Prussia's example and deserted the anti-French coalition to make peace, 
while most of the minor German states also withdrew from the war. By then, the only important members of the First Coalition, nominally at war with France, were Austria, Britain and the Kingdom of Piedmont, Sardinia. France's success was extraordinary. On two occasions in the summer of 1792, and a year later, the revolution had appeared to be on the verge of total collapse. But by 1795, it had achieved greater conquests than even Louis XIV had ever managed. The French had achieved their objective of expanding the territory to its, as some claimed, natural border to the River Rhine. However, it proved difficult then to demobilise her massive army, with the economy suffering, it was also increasingly difficult to feed and equip the troops. Buoyed with a string of victories on the battlefield and increasing confidence, further military adventures seemed attractive as a way of postponing the difficulties of demobilisation. Armies would be able to live off occupied territory. The principal target became Austria, since Britain retained control of the seas was therefore in practice safe from direct attack. The Directory, the name of the government which ruled France after October 1795, therefore directed a two-pronged attack against Austria, in southern Germany and in Italy. In Germany, one French army under the commander Jordan headed to Mainz, while another under commander Peter Gru captured the town of Mannheim. Both armies were pushed back over the Rhine by a vigorous Austrian counter-offensive led by Archduke Charles, the younger brother of Emperor Francis II, who was gaining a reputation as Austria's most talented general. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's, a, it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. The next year, 1796, an attempted invasion of Ireland by the French was foiled when a storm scattered the fleet. And on the continent, France attempted a three-way attack against Austria, two through Germany and a third with a revitalised army of Italy, which marched through Piedmont and Lombardy, up the Alpine passes and into the Tyrol, ending in a pincer movement that would capture the city of Vienna. At first all went well north of the Alps, 
During the summer, the most northern army under Jordan reached near the border of Bohemia, and another under Jean Moreau advanced into Bavaria. But the Austrian commander, Archduke Charles, skillfully succeeded in preventing the two armies combining, while at the same time concentrating his own forces. On the 24th of August, he inflicted a decisive defeat on Jordan at Amberg, forcing him to begin a long retreat to the River Rhine. General Moreau, on hearing the news, ordered his own army to withdraw. Aged 26 and now promoted to general, Napoleon Bonaparte possessed little active military experience on the battlefield except as an artillery officer of the Siege of Toulon in 1793. His Army of Italy enjoyed the advantage of moving into territory until then unravaged by war. The peace which the Italian peninsula had enjoyed for half a century was about to be rudely and violently interrupted. Bonaparte arrived at the city of Nice in late March with 38,000 troops and defeated the Piedmontese army. And so Victor Amadeus III of Savoy sued for peace before the month was out. The French army could now turn on the remaining 20,000 Austrians defending Lombardy. On the 10th of May, Napoleon scored his first victory over the Austrians at the Bridge of Lodi, and five days later entered Milan. By the end of May, all Austrian Italy had been conquered except for the fortress of Mantua. Napoleon had moved so quickly that he easily outran the other French thrusts into Germany, so while waiting to strike northwards, he decided to raid central Italy, Parma, Modena and Tuscany. In great haste, Austrian forces were regrouped and at the end of May, almost 26,000 men were transferred from the Rhine into Italy to relieve Mantua. Between August 1796 and January 1797, the Austrians made four attempts to break through to Mantua, but failed after several hard-fought battles. After six months of siege, Mantua finally fell on the 2nd of February. Before heading north to Austria, Napoleon chose to deal with the Papal States in central Italy. Pope Pius VI engaged in a long series of delaying tactics during negotiations hoping for relief from the Austrians, and for this mistake now paid a heavy price. A division of French troops entered his territory, causing such havoc that he immediately sued for peace. The result was the exceptionally harsh Treaty of Tarantino. Pius was forced to pay a huge indemnity, surrender the northern province of Romagna, and officially ratify the French occupation of the papal enclaves of Avignon and Venaissin. Most humiliating of all, the treaty also formalised the confiscation of artistic treasures from the Vatican. Over a hundred paintings and other works of art were to go to the Louvre in Paris. Of the confiscated works of art, a bronze statue by Junio Bruto remains in Paris. However, most of the works were restored 
after Napoleon's fall. The Italians pay dearly for being so-called liberated. One of the goals of French policy was the accumulation of foreign wealth. Milan was looted, most of his art treasures removed and was forced to pay 20 million francs. Whenever a French army occupied a city, they seized its bank and munitions and demanded food and clothing for their soldiers. The great treasures were stolen to embellish Paris and the Louvre. The author David Gilmore, in his book The Pursuit of Italy, quotes two speeches made by Napoleon, whose contradictions help demonstrate the ambiguity of his attitude to Italy. Soldiers, he declared to his army in April 1796, you are hungry and naked, the government owes you much but can give you nothing. I will lead you into the most fertile plains on earth, rich provinces, opulent towns, all shall be at your disposal. There you will find honour, glory and riches. End quote. Yet a month later he proclaimed to the people of Italy, quote, The French army is coming to break your chains. We shall respect your property, your religion and your customs. End quote. The last point was a straightforward lie, but many Frenchmen seem to have genuinely persuaded themselves that the peoples of conquered lands would welcome them with open arms as liberators. In spite of having their towns and cities plundered, their treasuries emptied and their sovereignty diluted by being forced to become satellite states. The French brought not only liberation but exploitation. Some of it was organised and official, but their armies also inflicted general looting, murder and rape on an unprecedented scale. Although attempts by the locals to resort to armed resistance were ruthlessly crushed, persistent passive resistance ensured that the French could maintain their conquests only by force. In Venice, the commander was exceptionally greedy and vindictive. Apart from looting numerous works by Titian, Veronese and Tintoretto, he ordered officials to destroy the Venetian emblem, the Lion of St Mark, wherever they found it. He also sent to Paris the famous bronze horses of St Mark. The Venetian Republic had been founded 1,100 years before, in 697, and had until quite recently been a significant power in the Mediterranean. The Ottoman Empire had slowly eaten away at her maritime empire, but the Republic remained in possession of its continental domain, which extended west almost to Milan. The 18th century saw a steady decline and failure to keep her military up to date, so that by the 1790s her war fleet numbered just a small handful of ships. In 1792, the king of Piedmont Sardinia had offered the Venetians to join a neutral defensive league, but the Republic refused point blank, adhering strictly to the policy of neutrality. This proved to be a grave mistake for Venice. Her lack of military strength had not been a problem in the half-century of peace just past, but proved completely ineffectual against the might of the French army, leaving her completely at the mercy of Napoleon when he arrived. 
relations between Venice and revolutionary France started to fray when the Republic resisted calls to remove a brother of the French king, the Count of Lille, from her soil, although the Venetians did finally give in to the demand. Then, as Napoleon's army was sweeping through Italy, he complained that Austrian troops had been allowed to pass through Venetian territory on their way to Mantua. In spite of French suspicions of Venice's imperial sympathies, Paris made three separate offers of alliance in 1796, yet the Republic declined all offers. A probable reason, according to John Julius Navage, is that the whole concept of revolutionary France was repugnant to her rulers. They refused to contemplate a treaty with a nation of anarchists and regicides. One can speculate whether, if Venice had accepted the offer, she could have retained her independence, but by rejecting it she sealed her fate. French troops moved into the Venetian territory with some local resistance, but nothing they could not easily deal with. For Napoleon, the Republic of Venice was to become just a bargaining chip with the Austrians. Her days were numbered. Once Mantua had fallen, Napoleon and his army could turn north for the long-delayed thrust into Austria. Facing him was the Archduke Charles. An excellent commander, though he was, he had too few troops. The French were able to push the enemy back in a number of actions and occupy the southern half of Tyrol. By the end of March, the Austrians were in full retreat and Napoleon crossed the Alps and pushed into the Austrian heartlands. Before reaching the walls of Vienna, the French general unexpectedly called for a truce, perhaps concerned about overextending his lines of communication. On the 18th of April, 1797, a Franco-Austrian preliminary peace was signed in Leubon in Styria, in Austria, and confirmed in the later peace of Campo Formio. The treaty marked the end of the War of the First Coalition, although no agreement was made between Britain and France. France received Belgium, most of the left bank of the Rhine, Lombardy, Venetian Albania and the Ionian Islands, including Corfu and Catalonia. Austria received Venice in return. The last doge of Venice, Ludovico Manin, agreed to abdicate, and the end of the Republic was declared. The Austrians also agreed to formally recognise a new state set up by Napoleon, the Cisalpine Republic, merging numerous territories in northern Italy, including Milan, Modena, Pavia and Bergamo. Writes Tim Blanning, quote, As an exercise in cynical, old regime-style balance of power politics, this could not be bettered. Indeed, it was even more outrageous than the partitions of Poland. If proof were needed that revolutionary France was just another great power, this was it. End quote. He adds that although the Austrians were certainly acting under duress, their abandonment of the Holy Roman Empire was an act of self-mutilation, if not suicide. For the secret articles of Campo Formio stipulated that the Emperor would help the French gain imperial principalities on the left bank of the Rhine. By agreeing to accept the Archbishopric of Salzburg, 
as compensation for the loss of his territories in the West, he gave advance approval to the secularization of the ecclesiastical states, and thus to the elimination of the Habsburgs' most loyal allies. The territorial changes imposed on Italy, including the formation of the Cisalpine Republic, went far beyond France's original aims. They implied a direct, aggressive expansion and the exporting of the revolution. Napoleon showed scant regard for the sovereignty of the Italian states in his remodelling of the political geography of the peninsula. I hope you can join me next time for the concluding part of the French Revolutionary Wars. In the meantime, check out the podcast Facebook page or Patreon page if you would like to help support the show. Thank you for listening. Until next time, all the best and goodbye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.